to. Anyhow, okay. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on, do whatever you do. We're going to Romans 12. Okay? Romans 12. Um, critical book. R- Romans is, is one of those books that a lot of times we avoid. A lot of times we start on them and then we get, you know, sort of like glazed over as we're reading through. And um, uh, we, we sometimes have, or we put it off saying, well, when I get more mature, uh, I'll read Romans. Or I'll, uh, I'll, but really, it, Romans is for, for every believer. It really is. Um, brand new believers or seasoned saints. Romans is, is vital. It's, it's crucial in, in the, the founding and in the development of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's, a lot of times we, we avoid it because Romans is heady. I, I'll grant you that. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are considered a, a theological and doctrinal masterpiece, especially when it comes to uh, the, the area of, of um, salvation and the gospel. Um, in those, Paul doesn't cover all doctrines of our faith in, in those chapters, but boy, he drills down when it comes to soteriology. He drills down when it comes to what Jesus has done and, and this, this thing we call salvation. And, and he, he hits themes that, that really theologians and scholars have not yet exhausted the depths of meaning and understanding and, and how to, how to apply mind those things out and then apply them in life. It's just one of those kinds of books. Romans is the deep end of the pool. Okay, is, is that a good picture for you? Romans is, a, is the deep end of the pool. So I, I encourage you, if you avoid, if you're one of those who like gloss over Romans or plan to get to it or something, I, I suggest, or if you're looking to start a new Bible study, I, let, me, let me recommend the book of Romans. But let me give you a little advice. Read it slow. F- forget your daily reading plan where you've got to read four chapters a day or whatever that is. Read it slow. Um, f- find another, a couple of nice good commentaries that you can read along, along with Scripture. And just then sit under it and, and let the Lord speak to you through his word. It, it's crucial because it's the foundations of Christianity. It's going to be hard to live as a Christian if you don't understand what makes you a Christian. Did that make sense to anybody? Okay. So you got 11 chapters that you could say, but then we come to chapter 12. And and a typical literary style in that time was you, you lay a foundation and then you move on to the practical application of what it is you said. And that's that's where we're at when we come to Romans 12. The whole thing pivots at that point. The tone, the direction, the intent, the purpose, it all shifts. It, it's almost like Paul takes off his scholarly robe and he, he goes and he puts on you know jeans and a T-shirt and sits down and says, OK, now let's talk about you. Now let's talk about what this means um, to you. Let's talk about what this looks like in real time. And the whole thing shifts. If you read Romans, if you could do it in, in one setting, you'll, you'll feel that. You'll read 11 chapters and, you, and then you come to Romans. And we're going to just take the first two. I'm going to preach three weeks on two verses. And you know I can do it. <laughs> and hopefully we can fit it in three weeks, okay? Um, because he now says, okay, there's the foundation. Now we're going to talk about you. And I entitled this series Hard Truth. Because I don't know about you. I found something in life. I found that sometimes there's some things in life hard to learn. 
Some lessons in life are hard to learn. I found out that some, but though once learned, it's harder to apply, to live out what it is I've learned. I'm a, I'm a big believer about myself and about really most people. Maybe you're the exception, but that as Christians, we typically believe more than we behave. Let that settle. Don't get mad at me. But I think that it's, I know it's true about me. I found that it's easier, even difficult things to learn, applying them to something else. It's another level. It calls for something more out of us. But in all honesty, if you're going to learn truth, it's foolish to learn truth if you're not going to live truth. Right? Why, why learn it? It's just information at that point. It's just data. It's just knowledge, but no purpose attached to it. It's the living out. So I've called the series Hard Truth. Because sometimes Christianity is. Can I get a witness? <laughs> sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, it's hard. It's hard to understand. Romans is an example of that. And then in some ways even harder to walk out in life, to apply in life. In, in Romans, the second chapter, Paul is talking to the folks and he says this, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you, will you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And he's making my case for me. He's saying that you know the truth, but you don't do the truth because it's a different thing. It's on a different plane of, of having to apply what it is that you now know. And if you know it, you're now responsible for it. So let's go to 12th chapter. We're going to read the first two verses and then launch into our, our study for today. Paul's writing. He says, I, you know these verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, open your word to us today. As we open our hearts and open our minds to, to receive from you, we, we want to learn from your word today. Holy Spirit, I pray that I don't teach it, but you teach it so that it changes us so that it stays with us. So, so God bless the preaching of your word today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so today is the first of a three-part series, as I've mentioned. Today we're going to, I broke it, I've, I've sort of pulled out of, because you know me, I like, I like outlines. That's just sort of the way my, my, my mind thinks. Um, so today we're going to talk about the appeal, Paul's appeal. Next week will be the application, and then we'll talk about the advantage on our third Sunday together and in, in trying to pull something out of, out of verses. And sometimes it's hard when you read verses that are just so familiar. We've heard them so many, so many times. As a speaker, sometimes you get a little weary of even maybe thinking about preaching or teaching on those subjects because you think, well, people have heard it so much and they, maybe they think they know it all. And maybe you do and maybe you can teach it better than I could, but I'm going to give it a shot. Okay, so today's the appeal that Paul makes an appeal to the people. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, when I'm not going to take time because you already know when you read it, therefore, why what it's there for. Right. You already know that you understand that it's a pivot. It's a change. It's a shift in focus. He says, I appeal. 
King James, I think it is, uses the term beseech. I like that word. We don't use it much, but I like it because it's, it's unique. But it has, it has a power behind it. Um, it, it, it. This is really strong language that Paul is trying to use. It, it means I, I urge, I plead, I beg, I exhort, I, I admonish you. In fact, the root word that's used for this word appeal or beseech is parakleo. Now that should ring something in your ears, right? When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure from the earth, he says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send a paraclete, right? I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send another helper. I'm going to send someone alongside to encourage you, to admonish you, to exhort you. It's, it's, it's the same word. It has that kind of urgency attached to it. I appeal to you, therefore. And he says, to you, brothers. It tells us who he's writing to. Now, when you read that, listen, it's not, this is not a, a biolo- neither biological or gender specific. Just because it used a, 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 a male tense of the word. It's, 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 he's saying, I, I'm writing to you and I'm appealing to all of you who are one in Christ. I'm writing to all of you who have given your heart to Jesus. I'm writing to all, all of you followers and disciples of Jesus. I'm writing to you who are part of the one new man. Remember Ephesians? The one new man. This brand new species of human beings. This brand new, one of a kind. Um, it, it, oh, I can't go there. I just can't go there. Some other time I'm going to have to go there. I want to teach on the one new man. Um, he, so he's talking to us. All right, he's talking to the entire church family, um, and it, which means that his appeal only applies to Christians. All right, and if you're a Christian today, his appeal applies to you. So if you can in your mind, just imagine Paul's talking to you. This is a letter you're reading, and it has your name at the top. All right, he, he's writing to you, he's writing to us. The appeal is simply this present your bodies, not simply, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All right, I want to I break that down for us a little bit today and see where we, where we end up. Paul references, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay, holy, acceptable to He's referring to something that would have perked up the ears of, the, his, of his listeners. He's referring to the sacrificial system. Okay, of course, we know that... The Jews would have understood that, knowing their history, knowing their, their worship style. But it, it wouldn't have exempted the Romans because the Romans were also included sacrifice in their style of worship. They, they brought sacrifice. So they would have understood as well. And when they heard Paul make that reference, they were understanding the, the depth of the appeal he was going to make. They, they understood in that, in that um, framework that, that this is big stuff that this, this appeal is going to call for something out of us. And, and I want to sh- just pull out the three things that, that his appeal I- encompasses. Uh, uh, number one, complete devotion. He says, present your bodies. All right? Present your bodies. Now, they, they, th- there was a little twist. They understood, but they didn't understand. There was t- a, a twist on how they used to think of their old Practice that there was a little twist that was added to this because they understood about bringing and presenting a body. It just was never their body. 
How many would say that's a twist? He says, present your body. See, you no longer bring a sacrifice. You now bring you. You are the sacrifice. Your, your life is the sacrifice. And that had to make some, some eyes widen. That had to make some, some people start maybe scratching their head that, that the, the new, this new covenant is going to require a real shift in our thinking with, with this concept of presenting our bodies, not a body, presenting our bodies. That, and even today, when we think about um, presenting our, our bodies, okay, we, we normally don't think, we think in terms of talent, treasure, right, and time. That's our sacrifice. We sacrifice time. We sacrifice talent. We ta- sacrifice treasure. And we, we bring them to the Lord. And, and listen, he, gets, he receives that. That is a part of our worship. If our heart is proper in the way that we bring and offer that, that, that part of our life, those parts of our lives, then he, he's honored in them. He's pleased with them. He, he receives them with, with, and, and he blesses back those who, who offer themselves. But understand, that's not the sacrifice, the totality of the sacrifice that he's asking. How many of you know God doesn't need your time? He doesn't need your sacrifice in those areas. He's saying the sacrifice I desire is you. Bring your body to me. What he's saying is, see, because I don't know if you know this, but everything you are is in your body. That's just it. Everything you are. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your, your, your um, plans, your desires, your dreams, your wishes. Everything that is you is in your body. So when he's saying present your body, he's saying I want all of you. He, he's talking about the entirety of, you, of your person. Everything that you are. See, Christianity, this, this life that we're called to is, is an immersive kind of thing. It's an immersive relationship with, with the creator of the universe. Um, Technology uses that word a lot, immersive. Um, maybe you would understand the surround sound. That's a familiar, right, surround sound. It, the, the, the goal is to, tech, with technology, is to create an environment or an atmosphere where, where you are immersed in sound. Where no matter which way you turn or look, it's all the same. It's all equal. You're immersed in that, in that sound. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the commercials. They make furniture now where they're putting speakers in the furniture because they're trying to come up with this immersive kind of sound that, that, and audio that's available to you. Well, that's, that's a sort of a picture of what Paul is saying here, that, that our whole life is to be immersed in his life. Our whole life is to be surrendered. The Bible says that, we're, we, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's immersive kind of living. That, that's, a, that's a complete devotion of our lives to Jesus. So secondly, he says sacrificial devotion. Sacrificial devotion. Okay, complete devotion. Now sacrificial devotion. You're to present your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice. Now again, this is a new concept to them. They understood sacrifice. They didn't understand living sacrifice. They brought sacrifices and those sacrifices didn't last very long. They weren't alive for long. When they brought their sacrifices under the old covenant, this new covenant still required the shedding of innocent blood. It still required that if sin is going to be atoned for, 
Someone has to die for it. Blood has to be shed. But now not not the blood of lambs and goats and, and bulls that God has provided a final sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. God has provided his own lamb, the Bible teaches that was going to be, that would be sacrificed, or in this moment in time was, that was sacrificed for their sin, was sacrificed as the final payment for the sin of mankind. The Bible says he became sin for us. One sacrifice for all of time for everyone who would believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, God's not asking us to die for him. He's asking us to live for him as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. The best verse I could find to try and give that that picture, again, well-known, listen to it again, though. Paul writes to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, but yet I'm alive. Living sacrifice. Because the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in him. The one who loved me, the one who gave himself for me. I live my whole life, my whole existence now. I live as a living sacrifice. Because I died. I recognized that I was dead in sin. The Bible says that. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy and with his great love, through Christ, raised us up. Made us alive in him. That's a living sacrifice. When I was reading this, I, yeah, I tried to read a lot of other viewpoints and, and authors and, and whatnot. I came across one statement that I thought was sadly comical. Comical, but sad at the same time. It says the, the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to want to crawl off the altar. <laughs> I thought that's probably a good picture of us. But that's what Paul's talking about. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So complete, um, or complete devotion, sacrificial devotion, and the third, identifiable devotion. Holy and acceptable to God. Okay, he's talking about the quality and character of living sacrifices. They had to be holy and acceptable. That, holy meaning sacred, cleansed, set apart. For a specific use, for a specific purpose, they had to be morally pure. In the old, in the old testament, or the old covenant, you know, everything—the temple and everything that went in it—was anointed, was was cleansed, was dedicated, was um, committed to the Lord for His purposes, was set aside for sacred use. In, in the new covenant, you're the temple. And and the Holy Spirit is symbolized in Scripture sometimes as oil. So, and the Holy Spirit is in us. So you've been anointed. You've been set aside. You've been marked for the purposes of God. You are a holy vessel set aside for his use and his purposes. And then acceptable, that's holy. Acceptable simply means well-pleasing, relationally satisfying. We're to be holy and acceptable as living sacrifice. That means we stop living to please ourselves. That means that our life becomes all about him. Live lives that are holy and acceptable and very specific to God. To God. We're not set aside for our own purposes. We're not set aside for the sake of other people. We're set aside to God. And then everything else comes under that. We're 
aimed at him, we're, we're directed towards him, our life is all about him, that makes us identifiable. See, being, presenting ourselves to him as living sacrifice should identify us to others. If we're living these kinds of lives, others will notice. Some may think you're weird. Some may think you're strange for believing and living the way you do, for having the values that you have. Others will be drawn to it. And sometimes the reason people criticize you, because in their, in their inner being, they know you're right. They know you have something that's real and that's alive, and they're just not ready for it yet. Okay? Identifiable devotion. And then this is where his appeal gets interesting and where I want to spend the remainder of the little bit of time I have. He says, in the, in the ESV, that's the translation I normally use, and it says, which is your spiritual worship? Okay? Um, Presential bodies, living sacrifice, holy experience, which is your spiritual worship. And, that, and that's fine. That, that, I don't take offense at that. But I think King James does a better job, frankly, in this, in this situation. Um, the, in, in the Greek, it's the, the logokos latria. Okay? The, the, the spiritual worship is, is logokos latria. Logokos has to do with logic. So we, we get our word logic from that root of, 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 in the Greek. And it means what logic means, sound. Relevant, rational, justifiable, okay, when something's, when something's logical. And then latria means service, but specifically acts of service that, that are devoted to a divine being. Acts of continual divine service is what that, word, that, that means. So that's why I think King James does a better job. King James translates that as reasonable service, not spiritual um, worship, but reasonable service. So I'm going to use that today, that Paul's appeal is to present our bodies to, to this life of, of complete devotion, this, this life that's sacrificial, this life that's identifiable, because it's a reasonable service back to God because of what he's done. And the question that it raises in my study, so I thought, okay, I'm going to ask everybody that. Why should I suffer alone? <laughs> when we think of the description of, this, of his appeal, and, and that Paul now calls it reasonable service, the question it, it elicits in me, at least, is, is it? Is it reasonable? Now, I'm not, don't, please don't raise your hands. Don't, don't make it sound like you, you know, are guilty of this. But as far as I know, if every, every honest Christian has entertained a thought, at least, or had moments in their journey with the Lord where they think, this doesn't make sense, or this is too much, or what he expects is a little extreme, the, the life that he calls us to and wants from us is, is not, it's not always, it's not relevant. It doesn't, it, it's just, it, it's not reasonable. And, and it's a valid thought. In fact, I think it's probably part of our development. We, we have to settle that. We have, to, we have to come to a point where no matter what God asks of us, we consider it reasonable. And it sometimes takes a while to get there. 
And some, sometimes there's some Christians maybe who will never get there. That what God is asking of, of us is reasonable. So here's something, you, if you take notes, it's a good statement to write down. If you don't believe that the discipline of discipleship is reasonable, you won't do it. Now, that's not just true of a, a faith walk. That's true in any endeavor in life. If you don't believe what the expectations are and the discipline required in, the, in, in order for that endeavor to, to be successful in your life, you're not going to do it. You, you're just not going to go there. See, if you, I, I did a little just surface research and study of, of the training for Navy SEALs. You know my conclusion? Unreasonable. I thought about the years of training and studying and, and the expense of, of studying to be a neurosurgeon. Unreasonable. I thought about the discipline that it takes to, to be a, pick a sport, but a professional athlete. My opinion, where I'm at in my life right now, unreasonable. It, it, it's just the demands, the expectations put on these people to, to, in those areas is unreasonable to me. But you know what? It's not to them. So you have to say, okay, why? And the answer is not really hard to, to, to grasp or to understand. It's because they're reaching for something I'm not reaching for. They're going after something that's so important and driving, and, and that it drives them, and I don't have that drive. I have no desire to fly around the world as a Navy SEAL on secret missions. Ain't going to happen. It just, it just isn't. I have no desire to, to uh, go into an operating room and, and cut into someone's brain. I'd be under the table, first of all. It would just <laughs> wouldn't be good. And I, in all honesty, there's a good probability in the rest of my life, I'm never even going to stand on the field where they play professional football, let alone be one. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen because here's your goal determines your reason. All right. Your goal, what it is you're reaching for, determines level of reasonability that, that you give that thing. So what, whatever's required becomes reasonable to you. Are, are we together? Are you following me? Whatever is required for that pursuit, even though others say that's nuts, it's reasonable to you. It, it makes sense to you. you. You will give yourself to walk that out, to follow. You will give yourself to apply that in life. You know, think of, think of explorers, think of inventors, think of pioneers. When, when you look at their life, everybody around them probably said, you're nuts, you're crazy. That's just so unreasonable uh, until they dis discovered something. Or invented something, you know? All the neighbors who lived around Noah complained about the noise of building an ark and the space that it took up. And they thought, Noah, you are, you are just crazy and what you're doing in the name of your God is unreasonable until it started raining. Paul writes to the Philippians, I reach for the goal for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Think about Paul's life. 
we know I'm just great missionary. But think about the things. There's, there's a passage in Scripture that lists the things he endured. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was whipped. And some of these things, numerous times. He was hated. He was driven out of cities. And now you could say, Paul, I, I can imagine his, his friends and family were saying, what are you doing? What, the thing, it's just so unreasonable, the kind of life you're living. But Paul says, no, you understand. I'm reaching for something. I have a goal in mind. And to Paul, it was all reasonable. Everything he had to endure, everything he went through, it was all reasonable. He says, I count everything else as loss except the excellency of knowing him. The increase of knowing him. The, the mere opportunity or privilege of getting to know Jesus a little bit more and become a little more like him. Paul says, I have a goal in mind. Here's the question that that question raises now about reasonability. How do we get there? H how do we get there in our lives practically? <laughs> okay. H how do we live lives that are so completely, sacrificially, identifiably devoted to Jesus? Our reflexive answer a lot of times, if we're sitting in a small group and that discussion came up, we would probably go... And not wrong, but not totally right either. But we probably go places where I say, well, we need to pray more. We need to improve in our, our prayer life. Or we need to study the word of God more. You know, or or we, need to, we need to more inv be more involved in, in, in uh, the, the life of the community of faith and, and, and draw more life and give more of ourselves in, in those areas. We need to serve more. We need to improve our, our attendance at, at fellowships and in times where the body of Christ gathers. And none of those are bad things. And all of those will feed this kind of lifestyle. But... But that's not the reason Paul gives. Paul, Paul in, in the text we're reading, only gives one reason why that kind of life is reasonable or will become reasonable to us. He says, and if you're checking our text, I skipped the phrase, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Offer yourselves, present your bodies by the mercies of God. I want to talk about God's mercy today. The, the whole burden of this message is, is one moment where, where God impressed on my heart. And he said, I want, here's the text and, and here's the burden of the message. Tell my people, don't forget my mercy. Don't forget my mercy. Because the relevance of his mercy depends upon the reasonableness of your walk. If you don't believe that the Christian walk is reasonable, then it will have less and less relevance in your life today in the way that we live and conduct ourselves by the mercies of God. We need to be more aware of his mercy than what we are. Why mercy? In my conversation with the Lord, God, why, why mercy? This is, this is a, the appeal. It's a big ask. I'll grant you that, especially a surface reading. That's a big ask that, that, you're, that you're appealing to, to believers to, to go after, to follow. Why mercy? Why not 
because of God's goodness, because of his patience? Why, why not be, because of his affections? How much, just because of his sovereign command? You know, I, if, if you grew up under a, a, a spicy little Italian mom, a lot of times when you ask, you know, and she says, I want you to do this, and you would dare say, but why? More times than not, there was a very simple, non-negotiable answer that would come back. Hmm? Because I said so. You, you grow with my mom. Because I said so. So why not that? Why not God just say it and say, because I said so? But he does. He says, because of my mercy. Because of my mercy, that's what makes this big ask reasonable or should. There's something about mercy I think we, we don't understand or that we forget about. And it's probably more the latter, that we tend to not think about mercy a lot. Not, not the conscious thought, but really think about your own life. We don't always think about the mercy of God. We don't always you know, identify things in light of, or define things in light of his mercy. We, we tend to look more in light of his, his love or his kindness or some of these other attributes. But why mercy? Okay, now first of all, you can't define mercy by going to the dictionary. You'll get some definitions, and they're not necessarily wrong, but they're way too shallow. We have to go someplace else. We, you know, and, and it, so if we look at the church, and you all have heard this definition, that you know, grace is getting the things that we don't deserve, and mercy is what? Not getting the things that we do deserve. And that's okay, and, and that's not erroneous in any way, but mercy is more than that, because mercy existed before dictionaries, before man's definitions, before time, before creation, before there was anything. There was only one thing, and there was God. And that's where mercy is found, because mercy is a, a, a divine attribute. Mercy is part of the, the essential character of God himself. God is mercy, just like God is love. God is mercy. It, it, if he ceases to be mercy, he ceases to be God. All right, so that tells us something else now. Knowing that, that, that tells that mercy is not natural to us because of sin. Mercy is not natural to us. And, and I know that varies. You know, some people maybe are a little more merciful, have a little more mercy in life than some other people. Some people live their lives with no mercy. And some people are very soft and warm. And but I tell you what, I don't care what your temperament is. You know, it doesn't really matter what it says about you on the, on the Enneagram. If, if you see things, if you, if you um, notice things, if you see enough abuse or, or inequity or injustice, if, if you see enough cruelty of, of man being cruel to, to other men, at some point in time, your initial response isn't to be merciful. Your reaction in viewing or experiencing even those things isn't to extend mercy. It's a different response that comes and rises up inside of us. Mercy is God's response to the justice that our sin demands. And, and we should be thankful for that. God's response to the justice that our sin demands. 
I like this one. I like it because I wrote these. <laughs> Mercy is God's relational solution to a judicial crisis. It's a relational solution to a judicial crisis. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, two things rose up inside of God. His love and his justice. And he has to be both. Right? He has to be both. How can he satisfy both? Man sinned. He loves man desperately. But his justice is saying... He didn't cut the grade. He didn't make it. You tried. It didn't happen. And then we come to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God's greatest act of love was also his greatest act of mercy. His mercy satisfied his justice. His mercy met the demands of his justice. The prophet Jeremiah wrote that it's because of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Do you understand that? If God ceases to be merciful, we cease to be. Mercy's big stuff. It's not just saying, oh, it's okay. Mercy's big stuff. And it took big stuff for God to extend it to us. To, to offer and give it to us. Nothing good happens in, the, in this life that isn't touched by God's mercy. Nothing good happens in this life that isn't touched by God's mercy. In fact, it's the only reason anything good happens in this life. The mercy of God. Listen to this. Without the mercy of God, this whole thing ends in the Garden of Eden a few thousand years ago. If God wasn't merciful, if he didn't extend mercy in the face of our failures, th this thing is over. If God didn't choose mercy, all human history changes. You understand that? If God didn't choose mercy, if he doesn't choose mercy, everything in humanity historically changes. Adam and Eve aren't covered by animal skins. Noah doesn't see a rainbow. Abram doesn't get a promise. Isaac isn't born. Jacob doesn't have 12 sons. Moses doesn't talk to a burning bush. Samuel doesn't, doesn't anoint David. The prophets don't write about a coming Messiah. Mary doesn't have a baby. The word doesn't become flesh. The cross is never stained with blood. The tomb is never occupied. The rest Resurrection never happens. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, if Christ didn't die from the dead, then we are above all people most miserable. If God isn't merciful, life falls apart. Life doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Hebrews says that he's holding the universe together by the power of his word. That's mercy. We don't deserve it. His mercy. And if God didn't choose mercy, not only did human history change, if God didn't, doesn't choose mercy, your history changes. Where would you be today if it wasn't for the mercy of God? Think about it. I've thought about it. I didn't like the answers. Your history changes. Paul writes to the Corinthians. 
who, who had their own little issues and, and thought they were getting to be all that. And Paul writes and gives him a little reminder and he wrote, puts out this laundry list of, of offenses to God and, and lusts and lifestyles. And then he says this, of such were some of you. That, that sort of balances you out, doesn't it? See, your history changes. Now watch this. If God doesn't choose mystery, his, human history changes. If God doesn't choose mercy, your history changes. But if you forget or ignore or neglect his mercy, your future changes. Tomorrow changes. And that's, I believe, what the burden of God's heart is for us to hear today. That his mercy wasn't just for yesterday. His mercy wasn't just for the cross. His, his mercy is needed, and we need it every day. We need his mercy every day. You know, there's that old hymn of the church that a lot of us probably used to sing that said, count your many blessings, name them one by one. With no violation, and I think the author would hopefully agree with me or allow it, you could apply that to mercy. Count your many mercies. Name them one by one to see what God has done in your life, in your life. When we forget about his mercy, then our future starts to change. It's, it's helpful. And I pray for all of us, including myself, that we become more mindful of his mercy in practical ways each and every day, that we be more mindful of his mercy. See, when we're mindful of mercy, it makes us more grateful. Right? When, when you recognize that you're not all that in a bag of chips, when you recognize things that you've done and who you could be, and then but the only thing that you're not that is because of the mercy of God in your life, it makes you grateful. It, it, it makes you thankful. Mercy makes you humble. It makes you humble. You, you, you can't think too highly of yourself when you remember it took the mercy of God to get you to where you are, and you're still en route. We're still in process. Mercy makes serving out of your life, giving out of your life, more likely. And when you do, you'll enjoy it more. It'll be more pleasing to you. Mercy makes relationships better because those who receive mercy are able to Right? And that always improves relationships. That always helps relationships to be mindful of his mercy. Listen, stand with me, won't you? When you stand, I talk faster. The good news is for us to understand that his mercy is present tense. Okay? It's, it's not just a historical thing, that it's present tense. Which means whatever your life's about today, his mercy is there and extended towards it and applies to it in some way. If you feel like a failure or if you're riding a wave of success, you need his mercy today. You need his mercy today in both of those extremes and everything in between. If you, if you look at your life, recent history, and you realize I've just I've messed up again. 
Maybe one of those cyclical things in the same area. I've messed up again. You need to recognize that his mercy applies to your life and to that circumstance and situation today. No matter what is going on in your life right now, if, if something really is hard or painful, his mercy is relevant today. His mercy is present tense in your life today. And, and as we close, I, I just want to read some scripture over you about his mercy. And I, and I want you to, if you want to look at me, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to, be, I, I want you to receive the word of God. Let the word of God just speak into your life today as it describes his great mercy, his present mercy. It says in Lamentations that his mercy is available, that he's faithful to make sure they come to you new, fresh every morning. His mercy is inexhaustible. The psalmist writes, give thanks to the Lord for his good and his mercies endure forever. That the, the size of your mess is never greater than the length of his mercy, the reach of his mercy. Peter writes that his mercy is hope-filled. It's according to his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Hope's unending in his mercy expressed to us through the resurrection. As long as Jesus is alive, hope is alive because mercy is extended. His mercy covers us. Psalmist writes, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. If you're, if you're alive today, his mercy's got you covered and you're not the exemption. It says that his mercy accompanies us. Psalm 23, you know it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I love the companion God, companions God assigns to follow us. His goodness causes him to be merciful. And because he's merciful, all his goodness is poured out on us. Accompanies us. So as we close, I want to tell you, make two statements and then we're going to end in a little different way. Number one, don't waste mercy. Don't waste mercy. Don't let days go by without identifying, thinking about, and celebrating his mercies in your life. Don't let the times of devotion come and go and never refer to or apply his mercy to your circumstance. Don't waste mercy. And his mercy is all around you. You don't have to go far. You don't have to think too hard to find his mercy extended to you. Is there somebody in your life who loves you? That's his mercy. There's somebody you love? That's mercy. Did you have something to eat? Are you going to have something to eat today? It's mercy. Did you have a roof over your head last night? Mercy. Did you just inhale and exhale? It's number one. Number two. When you're mindful of his mercy, and the more mindful you are of his mercy, this reasonable appeal becomes a radical lifestyle. Because you start recognizing in light of his mercy, 
anything he asks of me is reasonable. Because his mercy says, <laughs> you don't deserve anything. We deserve to end in a garden and never even exist. Anything on this side of that is his mercy. So everything he asks of me becomes reasonable, which makes my life radical. To present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to the Lord. To, to live the kind of life that Paul appeals to on the surface may sound so extreme but when you think about his mercies it's minimal it's obvious it's more than reasonable so here's what I want you to do to end our service today I want to put into practice what we've been talking about and I hope no one feels intimidating. This is not to embarrass anyone, but um, similar to how we ended service last week, I'm going to, I'm not going to close the service. You are. I'm going to ask you to just take a couple of minutes and, and get in groups of, of two to six, no more than six, please. And here's what I want you to do. Think of some area of your life where you can point to and say, that's God's mercy. Just as a thanksgiving, as a testimony. Here's where God's been merciful in my life. Now, don't give a speech. You know, just a thought, brief. And, and share that. And if, you, if you'd rather not share, you can pass. That's okay. And then somebody, I'm going to ask someone in the group to be a little courageous and close the time with prayer. Pray with one another and ask that the, the Spirit of God seal the Word of God in our hearts today. Okay? And that's how we're going to end. So go, find a few folks and just share together.